0: This is a Clovis Hills Community Church podcast. My name is Pastor Sean Beatty, and I want to welcome those of you that are part of our physical community and the online community. In a moment, you're about to hear from one of our teaching pastors. But before we do that, I want you to consider giving to the ministry of Clovis Hills Community Church. You know, this podcast is now extended to just about every continent on the planet, and people all over the world are hearing God's word taught faithfully. Your giving can help extend that to more and more people. Also, remember us in your year in giving. If you want to give towards Clovis Hills, download the Clovis Hills app and just hit the Give button. Enjoy the podcast. And guys, remember, go be the church.
1: Hey, uh, I hope uh, everybody's doing well. I want to take a moment to welcome our online community. Wherever you are listening to around the world, we want to welcome you to Clovis Hills. So glad that you guys chose to join us online. A couple weeks ago, me and Pastor Sean were taking a look at our app. And uh, on our app, you can see where people have downloaded and have been listening on our app and stuff. There's two people in Morocco that have downloaded the Club of Sales app. So if you're listening in Morocco, I don't know what time it is, but God bless you guys, that's amazing. we're going to get right into it this morning. We've got a lot to cover. We're going to continue on in 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 13. Pastor Sean and Pastor Steve kind of paved the way talking about the first part of the end of chapter 12, the first part of 13. Pastor Sean gave a great message last weekend. If you didn't get a chance to listen to it, you should go to the app or to our website and listen to that podcast because he talked about God's love. He talked about the difference between the different kinds of loves, if you remember. The Falejo and the eros, and then agape love. Well, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to continue in on that theme of agape love, and we're going to talk about maturing and understanding what that agape love is, how we respond to the kind of love that God has for us. That unconditional love. So, if you have your Bibles, your iPads, your iPhones, however you access the Word of God, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to go back into some of the verses from last week just to set the stage. So we're going to start in verse 4. We're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. My friend Larry's going to come up and read for us. So if you are able to, in honor of God's Word, will you please stand as we read His Word together.
2: Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: It was the year 2001, and the movie industry came out with a winner. One of my top 10, easily one of my top 10 favorite movies came out that year, starring Russell Crowe. It was called uh, Beautiful Mind. Do you remember the movie, A Beautiful Mind? If you don't remember the movie, if you've never seen it, heads up, I'm gonna give you the whole plot right now. Here's the deal, it's been 18, 19 years, so if you haven't seen it, you're probably not gonna see it, so I don't feel bad at all, right? So here it goes. Beautiful Mind was about a man named John Nash. He was brilliant. I mean just one of those freakishly gifted, intelligent guys who uh, as a young man went to Princeton University. Among the elite scholars in the nation, John Nash found himself to be at the top of that class. Absolutely brilliant. Everybody in the school knew who John Nash was because of his intelligence. They knew when, once he came onto campus, they had already heard about his reputation of being incredibly smart, incredibly intelligent, especially in the area of mathematics. In fact, at the end of the movie, and this is all based on a true story, at the end of the movie, we find John Nash receiving a Nobel Peace Prize for his work in mathematics. So he was absolutely brilliant. There was one issue with John Nash. And that was while he was brilliant and his mind could uncover and solve these incredibly complex algorithms and mathematical equations, he was also suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. And so what was happening was he did not understand what was real and what was not real. And as the movie progressed, he found himself in college, often other students would see him in the hallways and around campus talking to himself. But he didn't know he was talking to himself because he was creating uh, characters, fictitious characters in his mind that he thought was real. So he did not know when he was talking to somebody who was not real and somebody who was real. In fact, his roommate all the way through college turned out that was, he was a figment of John's imagination He had a roommate for four years that was there with him all the time, having conversations with with him all the time. And as the movie develops, we find out that he's not real, that he is a part of these personalities that John Nash is developing to cope with whatever he needed to cope with. And so as the movie goes on, uh, they begin to realize that he's a little bit out there and other, other students begin to talk about him and he doesn't quite know what's going on. In fact, other characters begin to get developed in the story as well. You have a roommate who is not real, who is part of the imagination and then his roommate actually brought a little girl and introduced a little girl as his niece. And he became so attached to this little girl, this little girl began to call John Nash uncle. And he thought he had this family, his roommate that he could talk to anytime, time. And this little girl that would call him uncle. But in the whole reality of what was happening was they didn't exist well, as John Nash graduated from college, he began to work in a a what he thought was a real job for the CIA, decoding, you know, breaking uh, other codes from other countries, being a spy and all this kind of stuff, and all of it wasn't real, it was part of his imagination. But he did meet a young lady and he married a young lady who was real. And they fell in love and got married. And then as their marriage and love was growing, she realized that John was off. There was something wrong. And she discovered this, that he was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. And eventually convinced him that he needed to get help for that. That this stuff wasn't real. And he did. He went and got help and he got some medication. And as he was taking the medication, uh, the, the people that were make-believe, the people that were in his life that weren't real, they started to disappear. And so he was doing really well until he decided he didn't like some of the side effects of the medication, so he stopped taking the medication. And as soon as he stopped taking the medication, these people started to appear again. The roommate, the little girl, they all came back into his life and started conversations. Well, the apex of the movie happens when, when as they, the wife, they, they had a child together, and he's at home and she didn't know, the wife didn't know that he had stopped taking medication, so she makes the mistake of leaving the child with John. And as he's watching the young child, the wife goes to the grocery store just for a few minutes to get some groceries, the, of course, who appears, but the people that are figments of his imagination. And so the the roommate appears, and the little girl appears, and the little girl goes downstairs and is playing downstairs. And the roommate comes upstairs into the bathroom as John is giving a bath to his little boy. Well, what does John do? He asks his roommate, who's not real, to watch the boy who's in the bathtub. And he goes downstairs and starts playing with the little girl. A few minutes later, the wife comes in from the store and realizes that John is downstairs. And she looks at him and says, where's our son? Oh, he's upstairs taking a bath. She, with a panic look on her face, she runs up the stairs, runs into the bathroom and realizes that the little boy's about to drown and grabs him, takes him out of the bathtub because he's face down in the bathtub and just merely just moments away from the little boy drowning. Saves his life. Well, she cannot handle it anymore. This was the last straw. She had to do something. And what she had to do, what she felt like she had to do, was get away from John Nash because of the destructive behavior that was happening in his life because of the schizophrenia. She went downstairs, she gathered her belongings, she grabbed her son and his belongings, and she told John, you better get help, but we are leaving, we are done, we can no longer go on this journey with you. And so she got in the car, she put everything in the car, she put her son in the car, she backed out of the driveway, and as she was about to take off down the street, John Nash jumps in front of the car, do you remember the scene? He jumps out in front of the car and he bangs on the hood of the car and he looks at his wife and he says, she never grows up. She says, John, what are you talking about? Get out of the way, we're leaving. He goes, no, she never grows up. John, you've lost your mind. I don't even know what you're talking about. He goes, no, 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 you need to understand something. I figured it out just now. I figured it out. I can tell the difference now between who's real and who's not real. The people who are not real, they never grow older. They never grow up. The young girl, I've known her since college, decades have passed, and she's still the same age. She never grows up. And he has this epiphany that if somebody is real and is alive, that they grow. That's the epiphany, right? And then he goes on and he receives the Nobel Peace Prize and he gives this speech about love and everybody's like, yeah, John Nash. But the moment in that movie is pivotal. And what Paul is telling the church in the Corinthians is the same thing that John Nash shared with his wife. If you you are alive and you've been transformed and you're real and your relationship with God is real, then it's time to grow up. You have to grow. In fact, if you are not growing, then maybe your relationship with God is a figment of your imagination. This is what he's telling the church. He says it's time to put away the childish things. Listen, if you remember, if you've been journeying with us on this, in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that the people in the church of 1 Corinthians are some wicked people. You know they've done some things that are that are wrong, that are harsh, and Paul has been trying to correct them. He's trying to get them back on the right path, but he comes to this chapter and he begins to talk about love. He begins to talk about God's love and unconditional love. The agape love that Pastor Sean described to you last week, that love that will never fail. And he tells them, listen, the skin of maturity, if you want to know if you are growing in Christ, it's not about the knowledge. It's not about the things you do. It's about how you accept God's agape love and then how you return that to the world. And it's time to grow up. And so I wanted to, the next few minutes, what I want to do is spend the time showing you in Scripture how, Paul is on the right track in challenging the church that, listen, we could say we're mature Christians, we could talk about growing in our faith, but if we don't understand the Father's love for us and that we don't in turn take that Father's love and give it to a world, then are we really growing in our faith? And so I want you to take a look at me in 1 Corinthians in these passages. I'm going to start with number one right here, that God's agape love, God's love is permanent. If you're taking notes, that's the first point. God's love is permanent. We need to understand this concept very clear about God's unconditional love. Look at verse eight. He starts off verse eight by saying this, love never fails. Love never fails. You see, God's agape love, God's love for us is permanent. It doesn't flee. It doesn't run. It doesn't, when things get tough, it doesn't stop and say, I'm out. It stays consistent everywhere you go. In fact, if you are here this morning, God is madly in love with you. He is madly in love with you. And you can run, you can try to hide, and God is constantly there no matter where you go. And he is just saying to you, listen, you can run, but I'm chasing after you. That's what God's agape love does. It chases after us. You think we could climb up and get away from God's love? He'll climb right up after us. You think we could dig a hole so deep that we can get away from his love? You can't, because he'll go down in the pit with you. He'll go wherever because he is madly in love with you. And that's what God's agape love is. It's it's permanent. You cannot get rid of it. He doesn't tap out. He doesn't say, well, you've done it now. I told you not to do it, but you did it. So I'm out. No, that's my love for you, if I'm real. But that's not God's love. It is permanent I remember several years back when I was living in L.A., we, uh, I, would go to, I would go to dinner once a week with these buddies, and these buddies are, I mean, they are such good friends of mine. None of them are believers yet. I've been praying for them for years. I'm still in contact with them. I love those guys. They, we, we, we've just a brotherhood there. And, and I so desperately want them to come to Christ because then a true brotherhood could, could really develop there. But I'm praying for them. And we'd go to dinner every single week. And this week we're at a restaurant, or, or this particular week we're at this restaurant. And, and uh, a few others joined us. So there, the, the party was probably anywhere from, you know, nine to 12, something like that. And we're sitting around this table. And with my buddies, the same thing happened every single week. They were, they were heavy drinkers. I was like the designated driver, you know what I mean. And they were heavy drinkers. They knew I was a pastor. They knew I was a Christian. And uh, every time these guys began to drink, there would always get a point in the conversation that either one or two things would happen. After a certain amount of drinks, it would either turn to politics or religion. Just like every time, like every week. And this particular week, the conversation turned towards religion. And there's a group of us sitting around the table. They all know I'm the only believer around this table. They know I'm a pastor. And so one of my buddies, his name was Doug. He, he has so many drinks of it. And then he finally says, oh, Scott, I got one for you. What about that age-old philosophy that contradicts the existence of God? I said, what is that, Doug? He says, well, you know what they say. Can God create a boulder so big that it's impossible for him to move? He goes, yeah, yeah, think about it. That just contradicts the existence of God, right? And I said, Doug, here's the deal. I'm going to be real with you. There are things that God cannot do. Uh, Everybody. I say, yeah, yeah, that's right. There are things that God cannot do. For example, it is impossible for God to stop loving you. What? Everybody at the table was like, oh, he burned you. (laughs) It was awesome. And it was this fleeting moment. That's all there was to the moment. We moved on to a different topic. But in that fleeting moment, that whole table, especially my buddy, got to hear what the truth of God's love is. And that is this, that God in his nature loves you. It is not in his nature not to love you. It is impossible for him not to love you. He loves you no matter who and what, and what you did last night, what you were thinking about coming into church today. It doesn't matter that God loves you and you cannot get rid of it. It is not in his nature. We worship a God that is love and will never stop or give up on us. That's the nature of God. A few, uh, the very next week, all of us all gather again because we did it every Thursday. Thursday. And I'm sitting there waiting for a table, and I put my name in, and my buddy Doug comes up behind me, taps me on the shoulder, and he goes, dude, you messed me up. (laughs) And to be honest with you, I forgot about the conversation. I forgot about all of it. He goes, yeah, you messed me up. I said, what do you mean I messed you up? He goes, you know, last week when you said that whole, I can't stop loving you thing. He goes, I went home, and I was just thinking about that all night long. I couldn't sleep. Dude, you messed me up. I said, oh, Doug, you know what that is? That's the Holy Spirit. And he's just speaking to you. And he's reminding you of this great truth that God is a God of love and he will go wherever you go to prove to you that he loved you. In fact, he went to a cross to die to prove his unconditional love. (laughs) And then the waitress said, Scott, table of eight. We just went in, that was it. I wish I could tell you today my friend Doug was a believer, but he's not. But, man, we're praying for him because the Holy Spirit is working in him. And he knows that God loves him. You see, God's love is permanent. The next one I want to talk about is God's agape love. God's love is complete. God's love is complete. There is nothing more that we need. There's nothing to add to God's love. It is absolutely complete as it is. It's unconditional We don't need to say, oh God, if you could just love me. Like, he loves you that way. Oh God, if you could just love, no, it's complete. That's the nature of God's agape love. Look at verse eight through 10. I want to read this to you. Right after he says, love never fails. Listen to what he says. It's very fascinating. Paul tells the church in Corinth this, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Paul is reminding the church that God's love is complete. But it is going to be complete. And we are going to fully understand it when the time comes that we get to see him face to face. You see, there's a time that all of us are going to stand before God. And what I find fascinating about this is that it says everything, it starts off with with prophecies. Now, Pastor Sean talked to you about prophecies and what prophecy was. It's it's proclaiming the word of God. So that's gonna cease. He says speaking in tongues is gonna cease. Now, let me just talk to the tribe for just a moment here. Like, you know, the tribe in the circles in which we run in here, right? It's easy for us sometimes to go, well, of course prophecies and tongues are going to cease because that's what those charismatics do over there, right? They're hoping and hollering and speaking in tongues. Of course, that's all going to cease, right? I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about our tribe today because right after it says that prophecies will cease and tongues will cease, it says that knowledge is going to cease. That's getting a little bit too close to home, God. Wait a minute. You mean not? Man, I'm full of knowledge. I've been studying the Word of God, and, and you're saying that it's going to be in part and it's going to disappear? Can, can, I really feel like I just need to make this point real quick so that we're very, very clear on what Paul is telling the church in Corinth. That everything, in fact, later on I'm going to get to, there's three things that are not going to disappear faith, hope, and love. Everything else is going to disappear. In fact, our knowledge is going to disappear. So, Let me just bring it home this way. We can make fun of whatever we want to make fun of, but there are some of us in this room that take the word of God, that take the Bible, and hold it up in such a way that we, it becomes an idol to us. I know those are fighting words. Hold on. Just hold on. Let me make something very, very clear. I don't want any rumors spread about Pastor Scott. Like, don't get honest. Man, Pastor Scott, man, he thrashed the word of God. No, 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 no. I want you to hear me very clear. The Bible is the word of God. It is his infallible word. It is truth. It is it was created for instruction and correction and rebuke. It is living and active. And I believe that it is the word of God. Now, now. Sometimes we take this and we use it as a study tool. Sometimes we use it as a textbook and forget the power that it has in it. That's what I am saying. Sometimes we merely study the word of God to gain knowledge instead of allowing it to transform us. Let me put it this way. Information without transformation, is just imitation. You see what I'm saying? That's all I'm saying. And sometimes we could take this Bible and we could hold it up as an idol, just like anything else, because we have not allowed it to transform us as we read it. Are we still on fighting terms? Because I got one more just to clarify what I mean. Maybe this will help right here. This is all I got. If you want to fight afterwards, we'll do. Cool. But this is all I got right here to drive this point home. Have you ever been driving and you're driving down the road and your beautiful day outside. You just cleaned your car. Your windshield is crystal clear. And all of a sudden something hits your windshield. Like a bird poop. You know, are you identifying with me here? A couple of years ago, I'm driving on one of those such occasions, and I'm driving, and all of a sudden, this monstrosity, this unbelievably big, colorful, psychedelic bird dropping hit my windshield. In fact, I thought, the first thing I thought of when it hit my windshield was, what did that bird eat? That is one sick bird. And then I began to look at it and all the colors and chunks that were in there. And I said, poor bird, you must be feeling ill. And as I'm studying this dropping on my windshield, I realized that as I was looking at the bird poop, I was veering off the road. I started to go into the other lane. Now here it is. Windshields were not created to look at. Windshields were created to look through so that we could see the road. That's the purpose of a windshield. God's word was not created to look at. It was created to look through so that we could see God. Are you following what I'm saying? And we make a mistake. And we say, man, if I just had, if I I just could memorize every story, if I could just read the Bible every day, if I could just download the app and get on one of those reading plans, I'll read the Bible in a year and surely I'll become a mature Christian. And if that's the case, we've missed the point. Because as we read this text that's living and active, God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. And he wants to transform us through its words. And if we miss that, then we've missed the point of the word of God. You see, God's love is complete, lacking nothing. Look what it says, John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus knew this point all too well. He knew exactly this point. Look at it with me. John chapter 5, starting in verse 39. 39 and 40 says this. Jesus is sitting with the, the Pharisees. And if you don't know who the Pharisees are, the Pharisees were religious leaders. And they knew Scripture. I mean, they knew Scripture. They were teachers of the law. They understood all of it. And he's sitting with a group of Pharisees. And he says this. He says, to the Pharisees, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have your life saved. So what Jesus is telling the Pharisees, listen, you know the scripture, but the scripture speaks about me, and here I am standing right in front of you, and you don't know who I am. You read the scriptures, but you don't allow the scriptures to transform you. You read the scriptures, but you don't let the Holy Spirit decipher them and speak to you and grow you in your maturity. And then he goes down to John chapter 5, verse 46. Look what he says to him. He says, if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me. Why is that? For he wrote about me. All of the scripture points to a Savior. And Jesus came and fulfilled all that. And here are the Pharisees just reading. They knew the books of the law. They they knew the Levitical law. They knew the words of the prophets. They knew all of that. And yet they missed Jesus. How is that possible? It's because they were reading the Bible. They were reading the scripture for information and not transformation. Are you with me now? Are we still fighting? Are we friends? God bless you guys. Let's move on. Verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put away the childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face, now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Paul is reminding the church in Corinthians that we need to understand God's love in such a way that transforms us. It is permanent. It is complete. And as we grow in our faith, when when did we as an American church, when did we realize, when, when did we say That the more knowledge that we have makes us more mature Christians. I don't know when it was, but at some point we turned that corner. At some point we decided the more knowledge we have about God makes us more mature Christians. And Paul is reminding the church of Corinth that that's not true. It's what we do with that knowledge. It's what we do with that love of God that actually makes us more mature in our faith. If you are here this this morning and you want to grow in your faith, understand how God loves you and then you go out and love others just like that. You'll see your maturity just grow and grow and grow. Put away the childish things. If we want to be alive, hit the hood of the car and say, we're not growing anymore. How do I grow? You live out what God has designed you to do through his love and understand that it's complete. Number 3 if you're taking notes not only is God's love permanent not only is God's complete love complete but God's agape love is supreme There is no greater love in the world than God's agape love for you and me There is no greater love that we can show the rest of the world than us showing God's agape love to other people and I know it's hard Ephesians tells me as a believer tells me as a husband that I have to love my wife as Christ loved the church. That's an agape love. That's incredibly hard. And my wife's awesome. You know what I mean? But I still find it challenging because that's an unconditional love. That's me as a husband saying, honey, it doesn't matter what you just said. I still love you. Honey, it doesn't matter what you're doing right now. I still love you. It's an unconditional love that says, I don't care what happens in our marriage. I'm going to fight for our marriage. I'm going to love you because that's how I'm supposed to love you because that's how God loved me. That's just a practical way to live out these relationships that we're all involved in. We need to look at life through the lens of this agape love. And it's hard and I'm still working on it. Ask my wife. She's right over there. She's probably like, hey, man, work on that, pastor. He knows I'm working on it. But I will tell you this. And this is true. And I'm not just saying it because my wife's right over there. She wasn't at all the other services. But I will tell you this. I could honestly say that I love my wife more today than I did the day I married her. Amen. And it's only through that agape love that I could do that. And that's real. Because if it was left up to just my love, it's probably not there. I know there's kids in here, but I like lean more towards the Eros love. You know what I'm saying? That'll sink in in just a few minutes for some of you. I'm so out of control. Oh, man. It's hot in here, yeah. And it's only in that agape love that I'm going to continue to love her. And I'm going to continue to love any of you, to be honest with you. Sometimes you think pastors have mysterious, mystical powers that we just love everybody. Truth is, some of y'all are hard to love. I don't know what I ate this morning that made me so bitter. I'm hard to love too. My wife catches me during the Charger game. Man, I am not lovable. I'm going to tell you that right now. But this idea that God's love is supreme and it's something we chase after, it's something we experience and then it's something we chase after. And it's something that God gave to us and that we give to others. That is the line of maturity in the church. This is what Paul is saying. This idea of God's supreme love was demonstrated because he was willing to come out of his place in heaven to step into our story. It's a supreme love. There is no love greater than that. Let me just tell you this, do you guys remember when you were in elementary school? Like, do you remember? Some of you it was a long time ago, some of you right here not too long ago. Now in full disclosure, Young people, like in full disclosure, let me just say this. You're probably not gonna understand what I'm about to tell you because you have cell phones now. And instead of writing notes like we used to do in elementary school when we liked a girl, you guys just text. Right? Am I right? You just text, right? But, but when I was like in elementary school, what did we have to do, church? We had to like write a note. You like that girl over there? And so the note looks like this, right? The note looks like this. I like you. Do you like me? You don't want her to think you're dumb, so you put that question mark. And then what do you do? You put yes, no, or maybe. Right? And then what you do is you fold that note up, and then you get a confidant. Like someone you fully trust, like your wingman. And then you'd have him, you take this. But you don't take it to the girl, you take it to her confidant, who then delivers the message to the girl. Right? And then she opens up the note and she reads that very important question, do you, I like you, do you like me? And then she circles one because you asked her to. Now, when I was that age, if she said yes or maybe, right on. Because if it's maybe, I still got a chance. And then if she sends back, yes or maybe, it goes through the chain of command again. And then it gets back to you. And you open it and you're like, yes. And then you write another question. Do you want to go out with me? Yes, no, or maybe. And then back through the chain of command. (laughs) Waiting that letter to come back to you with the news. I'm in the fourth grade, I don't know what I'm asking. Do I want to go out with you? What to recess, I don't know. But that was a logical next question to ask, and I asked it. Awaiting the good news if she'll go out with me. That's how it used to be, guys. God bless you guys, it's like a text away, hey, what's up, you know? That kind of a thing, but we used to do it that way. Here's the deal. God's love is supreme. And I'm going to show you how it's supreme right now. Because there was a time and place in the Old Testament that because of our sin and our separation from God, and the fact that God could not be around our sin, that he used to have to send his word, his message, on paper. And he used to have to have a confidant. They were called the prophets. Prophets. And he would tell the prophets his, his message and the prophets would go out and boldly proclaim what God said. But his love is supreme. And what God said was, I, 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 my love is supreme. And so what I'm going to do is I'm gonna stop the writing. I'm gonna stop the paper. I'm gonna stop the notes. And I'm gonna directly get involved into this situation. And so he stepped out of heaven and he stepped into our story so that he could show his supreme love. And how did he show his supreme love? He lived. He died on a cross. And three later, he rose again, securing the fact that his love is supreme. Because there is no other king, no other God. There is nobody else except God's love for us that would drive him to the cross and die for us. His love is supreme. And you can be sure That whatever you might be going through today, wherever you might be at in this relationship with God, that his love is supreme. That it is absolutely complete. And it is permanent. That's his love. I I, I get the struggle. And this is part of the maturing process of our faith. That there are days we wake up and we're just not feeling it. There's days that we wake up and just not sure about this agape love. And I certainly cannot extend that agape love to anybody else. But what God wants you to know this morning is that his love is supreme. And when all of this passes, there's going to be three things that remain. Look with me real fast at verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's all going to go. Three things are going to remain. Faith, hope, and love. And all of that, out of all those three, love is supreme. So this morning, I want to challenge you, church. I want to challenge you to take serious this idea of God's love and his agape love for us. And how that transforms us. And that it's real, complete, and permanent. And as we are transformed by his love, that we as the church get the privilege to turn around and demonstrate to a world this idea of agape love. So I got a homework assignment for you. No booze? Oh my goodness. Other services are like, ah, Henry, you lost me at homework. On the very next page on your notes, if you're taking notes, if you're not, you can still look at this. There's some discussion questions. A lot of these, you, you use these for your small group. So you lead your small group. And even if you don't, I want to challenge you to do something. There's a sermon writing team or a question writing team, I should say, that comes up with these great questions. They're awesome. But I asked them to put one in for me, and it's number eight. Do you remember at the beginning when I talked about the little girl and she wasn't growing? And that's how I knew she was fake? Well, these are some questions that we could ask ourselves. And if we're just honest, kind of rate ourselves, we can determine whether we're growing in maturity by some of these questions. Now I want to encourage you to take these questions before you go to group tonight or tomorrow or whenever you go to group to answer this and do a little self-evaluation. If you're bold, you'll have some others in your family do those evaluation questions about you. Then you'll really get to the, you know what I mean? That's okay, you start by doing your own. And discuss this. Because if we're going to take this idea of a God's agape love, allowing it to transform us, and then take it into a world, and if we're measuring our spiritual maturity based on that, then we can be honest with ourselves about some of these things. And only grow in the areas that we really need to grow in so that we can demonstrate to a world that we have been transformed. And that we love this world enough that we want to extend that agape love to them. Maybe you're here this morning and this is the first time or maybe the 10th time or 100th time that you heard about how much God loves you. But maybe it's just sinking in this morning that he wants a relationship with you. He is not mad at you. He is not angry at you. He absolutely loves you. And I know some of you are so filled with guilt that you're like, I don't know how God loves me. I'm going to tell you right now, He does. See, Paul put it this way in Romans chapter eight. He said, but God demonstrated his own love for you in that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Do you get the full impact of that passage? While you were a sinner, there's nothing that God doesn't know about you. He's sovereign, he's all powerful, he's all knowing. Do you think you're hiding some of your sin from him? You're not. Even if you're trying to hide, He's there. And in Revelation chapter 3, he says, I know you're in there, but I still love you. And so I'm standing outside of your door, your heart's door, your life's door, and I'm knocking. And the Bible says that if you open the door and let me in, I will come into you. And you can experience this transformation, agape love that God has for you. So here's the question. Aren't you tired of running Aren't you tired of guilt? Aren't you tired of just hoping that maybe God will love you? You heard this morning the truth that God loves you. And there's nothing you can do to stop him from loving you. So maybe this morning, just maybe, it's time to embrace that. And invite him to come into your life and open that door. And begin that relationship that's Transformative that will never cease, that is permanent. Maybe this morning's that morning that you allow God to come in and make you that person you were created to be. Let's pray together. Father.
0: Hi, this is Pastor Sean Beatty from Clovis Hills Community Church. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. Hey, I encourage you to download the Clovis Hills app on your phone. With the app, you can do all kinds of things like prayer requests, live notes, giving. I also encourage you to check out our uh, Facebook live page if if you want to watch online. You can come to our services live. They're Saturday nights at 6 o'clock, Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast.